So what, you are wondering, does a pastor do besides work three hours a week? <laughs> the word pastor is actually an old Latin word for shepherd or herdsman. You might be interested to know that the word pastor technically doesn't appear in the Bible except in Ephesians 4 where the word shepherd is translated pastor. But usually the Greek word poimen is translated shepherd. But you see, the role of a shepherd as it relates to caring for sheep and, and people is used a number of times in the New Testament. It's also interesting to note that the word is used a, a few times to refer to Jesus as the great or the chief shepherd. For example, in the benediction at the end of Hebrews, we read, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus names him. And then near the end of 1 Peter, we, we read, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Jesus is considered the great or the chief shepherd who cares for us, his people. But then also the word is used of men in the church who are given the responsibility to care for God's people. Consider the following passages, that Ephesians passage, chapter 4, and he, that is Jesus, gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors, and that's that word poimen or shepherd and teachers for equipping, uh, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. We see here that a primary function of a shepherd of people, a pastor, is to equip the saints that is, Christians, for the work of service to help build up the body of Christ, which is the church. It's my job to equip you so that I can work just three hours a week. <laughs> then there are uh, uh, some other passages in Acts and First Peter that give the role of um, shepherding or pastoring to the elders in Acts 20. Paul meets with the, Ephesian, uh, with the elders from Ephesus and says this to them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And I get this shepherd idea. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer, presbyter, uh, bishop. It was, used to be translated. To shepherd, and there's the verb form of that word poimain. Pastor, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my now listen, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So, we, uh, it's kind of interesting. We see the responsibility of pastors or shepherds uh, in this text is to oversee the flock and to guard it to protect it. Makes sense. That was a big part of the shepherd's job to protect the flock when wolves would seek to come in to carry away the sheep. Well, one more for your consideration. First Peter 5, where Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd. 
In the first few verses of that chapter, we read this. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. I'm an elder, Peter says, and the witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker uh, also of the glory that is to be revealed. He's talking about when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, do this, shepherd, that's the verb form, pastor the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, uh, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for money, Sorted gain, but with eagerness, not for money, eliminates about three-quarters of the people on TV. Um, not yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, they're given to your care, but proving to be examples to the flock than the chief shepherd. That's what, that verse. So here, we see the primary function of elders or pastors is to shepherd the, the flock called the church by providing loving and gracious oversight by being examples to the flock. So you put all of those passages together and we find the pastor's responsibility as shepherds is to, to lead, to feed, to equip, and to protect the flock that we call the church. This is why we have elders at, at this church. That may be a new term to you, elders, you know, whatever that is. Um, it, it, it may be a little bit new. You may have grown up in a tradition like I did in the Baptist church where we didn't have elders, we had deacons. Uh, but it's a bit, we see here it's a biblical term and it's their responsibility that includes overseeing the spiritual life and health of the church, thus leading the church. This is why every ministry here is built firmly on the Word of God because we believe the Bible is the means by which we feed the flock. This is also why it's not the pastor's job to do the work, but to equip you, and the elder's job to do the work, but to equip you to do the work. We could probably do a little bit better job in that. And it is the elder's job to protect the flock from false teaching. So, as a shepherd, one of many of this flock, I take the responsibility of feeding the flock through the Bible and protecting the flock. I take that very, very seriously. This is what Paul is doing as an apostle, a leader in, in the early church. Over and over in his ministry, his churches were attacked by false teachers, now he's heard about some false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, shown up and were attempting to infiltrate the flock, the church in Colossae. So he writes this letter to, to feed them certainly, but also to protect them. And his protection against these false teachers and their doctrines comes in at least two ways to this point. First, we've seen Paul hold high the person and work of Jesus. Any ministry that does not hold high the person and work of Jesus, run. False teachers always attack Jesus. The best way to battle that is to hold him high so that he shines brightly. As a result, it's been said that this book has the highest Christology, that is the study of Christ, of any book in the New Testament, I uh, agree. One thing that we can do to affirm the supremacy and sufficiency of 
of, of, of Jesus is to show that he is supreme over all things. God, Paul has done that rather well. I've said this over and over. We want to become so familiar with the reality of Christ that we can spot heresy when it rises. I'm not going to review everything that Paul has said in the first couple of chapters, but I want you to know it has been stunning. The second thing that Paul does in chapter 2 is to warn his readers about the specific false teaching of these charlatans that have shown up. Now, you may remember when we did our introduction to the book of Colossians back in um, June, we said it was difficult, actually impossible, to pinpoint the exact identity of this group of false teachers. Most today agree that they were a, a blended group. It's called religious syncretism, where they took a little of this, a little of that, kind of mixed it all together, and it came up with a whole new religion. You know, they took a little Judaism, a little Christianity, sprinkled in a little Jewish mysticism, maybe a little local folk spiritualism, and came up with this very new, strange religion, religious teaching. Now, while we may not be able to identify the group or give them a name, in our introduction, we observe the following about their teaching. I'm just going to put them on the screen. We'll go through them very quickly. If you want to have time to write them down, don't even try. It was a philosophy of empty deception. It was according to the traditions of men. It was according to the elementary principles, the, ele the elements and the, and the demons behind those elements of the spirit world. It was not according to Christ. And it was perhaps somehow connected to circumcision. We looked at all of that. Last week, bringing us to this week, it had to do with legalism regarding food and drink and, and holy days. All that's kind of Old Testament language. Paul calls this teaching a mere shadow of that which was to come, the, the substance or the reality which belongs to Christ. It seemed to be involved in asceticism. We're going to talk about that. The worship of angels, that's weird. It seemed to concern visions. Everybody was concerned about visions. Sounds a little familiar. Um, this group of false teachers was a proud group. Uh, this teaching contained an appearance of wisdom and self-made religion. And this asceticism or the self-denial included self-deprivation and an abuse, a self-abuse through a severe treatment of the body. That's a lot of stuff. We're going to try and get through that this morning. Comes from chapter 2. Again, we're going to try and talk about it today, hopefully making some appropriate applications because Paul, ever the watchful shepherd, protecting the flock, gives three warnings in chapter 2. Verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Verse 16, he says, therefore no one is to act as your judge. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Paul was playing the part of a shepherd protecting the flock. That's what we're doing. That's what I'm doing as I teach through this book. I'm seeking to protect the flock. Now in verse 8, Paul said, don't be taken captive by a philosophy of empty deception. Then he went on to tell them why. Because it's according to human tradition, just made up. It's according to the elemental spirits of, of the world, those things that you have been delivered from. And it is not according to Christ. He then followed that with some more Christology, more 
truths about Jesus. Last week is what I talked about, and I, I got to tell you, I, I owe you a little bit of an apology because I just kind of got, well, I just, gave you, I just gave you too much. In essence, what, what Paul said was this, don't allow yourself to be carried away as plunder by these wolves. Instead, look at everything that we have in Jesus. I could have said that in 10 minutes, last three minutes, two minutes last week instead of 45. Now he gets to verse 16, though. He's not done. He unloads a bit more on these false teachers. Look at it with me. Colossians 2, verses 16 and following says this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are in their shadow of what is to come, but the substance, it belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, uh, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, same term that we looked at earlier, why? As if you were living in the world, do you subject, submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, not according to God's the idea. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. That's a lot of words. Let me give you a quick outline uh, of the text. He says three things. Let no one judge you in diet or days. And then he goes on to tell them why. And he says, let no one defraud you in asceticism and false worship. And then he goes on to tell them why. And then he's going to kind of sum that up together. He says, let no one capture you and bring you into legalism. And then he's going to go on to tell them why. So we're going to spend our time talking about this Colossian situation, and then we're going to find that, wow, even today we can be judged, we can be defrauded, and we can be deceived in some of the same ways if we're not careful. So quickly, look at how these false teachers were promoting diets and days and judging, that means condemning those who didn't follow their teaching. Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Now, let's put that together with observing certain days that follow. And most think this was the Jewish part of this syncretistic mess. You know, take a little of that, a little bit of this, throw it in together. They were saying there are certain foods and drinks that you should not consume. That is, if you want to be spiritual like us, if you want to go beyond Jesus to that which is really spiritual, then abstain. Now, why were they saying this? gets a little bit tricky, a little challenging, but they abstained from food or drink, likely meat and wine, fasting, perhaps to induce visions that we're going to talk about a little bit later. This was the end game. Now, 
They took this teaching out of Judaism. We remember Jews had certain foods that they were not allowed to eat. And we also know that when Jesus came, those dietary restrictions were removed. In Mark 7, for example, Jesus said, don't you know that that which comes from outside of the body can't defile a man? It passes through the stomach and then is eliminated. And, and then Mark makes a little commentary. He puts it in parentheses. He says, by this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And then, and I think it's in Acts chapter 10, um, we read the story about uh, Peter and the sheet that was let down by the four corners out of heaven. Uh, and, and in the sheet were all kinds of unclean animals. And the Lord tells him, rise and have an unclean meat buffet. <laughs> and by that, God cleansed all food. We, we, we get that today. Most of us, I mean, look, come on. Most of us consume as much bacon and shrimp as we can. I mean, can anyone say bacon-wrapped shrimp? <laughs> bacon ice cream, what is that? Every once in a while, though, we, we get that, but people will make cer eating certain foods a spiritual issue. And I want you to understand that the whole problem here is that they were making a spiritual issue out of non-spiritual things. If you want to be like us, don't eat certain foods. And we see that today. Eating certain foods, they make it a spiritual issue. There was this time recently when this guy came up with what he called the hallelujah diet. Now listen, I want you to understand the word hallelujah is Hebrew for praise the Lord. This was the praise the Lord diet. I was deeply offended by his loose use of praising God in a diet. He tried to base this diet on the Bible. I'm not saying anything about the diet. I don't care about the diet. You want a diet? Diet? Go ahead. You can't take the Bible to create a diet unless you want to have an unclean food buffet. Kind of like Golden Corral. Okay. What... <laughs> I, did I just call Golden Corral unclean food? I did not mean to. <laughs> Don't tell them I said that. What, what about drink? Again, the idea seems to be that abstaining from wine made you more spiritual because it made you more susceptible to visions. It seems to me that drinking more wine would actually make you more susceptible to visions. Anyway. They said, we're going to put this away. They were fasting to bring about these spiritual experiences. And lots of Christians today, to the present day, make drinking certain beverages a spiritual issue. All right? I'm more spiritual because I don't. But the Scripture, I want to be clear, makes drunkenness the issue, not the beverage itself. And every time I say that, I, 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 I feel like I need to make some very important qualifications all right, I'm going to make three qualifications. Number one, underage drinking is against the law, which makes it sin. That means you can't even consider drinking until you're 21. If you do, you're sinning. Now, I'm not going to say this in the next service because my daughters are home from college, but one of them turned 19 and texted me on that day and said, I can now drink, turned 19, she said, I can now drink in Canada. 
is not that spiritual issue. Second, just because you have the freedom to drink doesn't mean you should. Nor should you go to the other extreme of making your freedom to drink a big deal. That's what's happening today. Hey, I just had a beer. Ain't I spiritual? No. That means you probably shouldn't drive. That's all it means. Who cares? The issue here is not the food or drink. Lastly, thirdly, there are others of you with addictive lifestyles that should stay away from certain drinks because you know it leads to drunkenness and debauchery and partying and addiction. You should not. Paul goes on, don't let them judge you, condemn you as it relates to diet. It's not the issue. And don't let them judge you as it relates to the calendar either in respect to a festival, a new moon, or the Sabbath. And these three words are used in the Old Testament uh, to speak of certain um, Jewish festivals and the observance of the lunar calendar and, 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 and the, uh, the, the Sabbath, of course. Apparently, these false teachers were making a big deal out of these holy day observances, right? If you want to be really spiritual, then you need to not do what we don't do. We see that today. You're more spiritual if you observe certain holy days. Some want to make Saturday, which is actually the Sabbath, by the way, the day the church should meet. And if you don't meet on that day, you're not as spiritual as we are. When I was growing up, there were certain things you didn't do on Sunday. Right? Remember that? You didn't. It's the Lord's Day. You, if you really want to be spiritual, you don't work on Sunday. No mowing the lawn. No washing the car. And for goodness sake, you cannot have fun either. Not on Sunday, no sports. So that means you just kind of sit around, I guess, and have holy thoughts all day. <laughs> they even had, and some places still do when I was growing up, Sunday blue laws, which means you could not buy any of those unspiritual drinks on Sunday. Getting wasted on Saturday was fine, no drinking on Sunday. We understand that all days are holy to the Lord. There's not a difference so don't let them judge you in regard to that. Paul says, in fact, that these past observances are a mere shadow of what was to come and has now come. It has come in Christ because the substance belongs to Christ. So, so the book of Hebrews, which we'll eventually get to, can't wait, teaches us that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of, many, of all of these Old Testament observances. So, for example, Jesus becomes our eternal Sabbath rest. I observe a Sabbath. You bet I do. His name's Jesus. Now, let me stop right here before I go to my next point. Because these false teachers were saying, hey, if you want to be holy, then don't eat that, don't drink that, and observe our holy days. Truth is... In the church of America, we do not have much trouble with that. But I do want to suggest that we have gone to the other extreme. What do I mean? We take our freedoms and allow them to become our excesses, and we think ourselves more spiritual because we eat certain foods, maybe not, and drink certain drinks. You're more spiritual because in your freedoms you imbibe. And I want to say to you, you are not more spiritual because you do these things or you do not. Because you observe certain days or you do not. 
I think that we are missing the point. Spiritual maturity is not found in freedom to eat, drink, and be merry on Sundays. It is found, spiritual maturity is found in Christ. He is the substance. If you are focusing on your freedoms to make you spiritual, your focus is in the wrong place. Paul even said in Romans chapter 14, it's a little different context, I understand, a little different twist on the same truth. He did say, listen, some people eat and drink to the Lord. Some people don't eat and drink to the Lord. It doesn't matter. It's to the Lord. So quit making a big deal about these things. It's not a spiritual issue. Second, Paul says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, which is Christ himself, by delighting in, ready, self-abasement, the worship of angels, and the pursuit of visions, which are inflated by a sin-filled mind. Some people suggest this is the most difficult verse in Colossians to translate or interpret. I agree. Let's just look at what these false teachers were saying. I'll try and do my best. First, they delighted in self-abasement. That word self-abasement is actually a very interesting word. It's the word that we usually translate humility, and it's usually a good thing. But your translation, it's in your lap, may say they delight in false humility. That's the idea. This false humility was seen in their self-abasement, a haughty self-denial of certain things. See how spiritual I am because I don't eat, I don't drink, I am careful to observe holy days, I am self-deprived. There was this self-focus on this so-called pursuit of self-abasement. True humility is not in being proud of what you don't do. True humility is not thinking little of yourself. True humility is found in not thinking of yourself at all. False humility. They were proud of what they did not do. Sounds a little bit familiar. Look at us, we're Christians, we don't do anything. And yes, I know I look like I just sucked on a lemon, but that's because that's what Christians do. Listen, Christianity is not joyless, it's joyful because of Jesus. Next, they were involved in the worship of angels. That seems a little bit weird. But this comes, remember, this is this amalgamation, all right? This comes either from this Jewish mysticism or this pagan folk spiritualism. Lots of discussion. Some suggest they were delighting in joining with the angels in a special worship of God. Look at us. We're doing angel worship. We're worshiping just like the angels. We even have gold angel dust. Look it up. Others suggest that they were actually worshiping angels. Paul doesn't specify whether these were those spirits that they were formally engaged in in worshiping, false deities or demons, or whether they were worshiping good angels whom I can assure you would be aghast at such worship. Anytime a man or a woman fell at the feet of an angel in the, in the Bible, they were immediately corrected. Some suggest that actually what they were doing was they were venerating the angels so highly. They were invoking the angels. Were so involved in angel and angel life that they were getting off focus. I'm not sure. Whatever the, 
reason the false teachers were advocating the worship of angels. And only the triune God deserves our veneration and our focus and our worship. That's it. If you're focused on angels, you're focused in the wrong place. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, Satan said to him, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will fall down and worship me. To which Jesus responded, and my boys know it, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God only and serve, or you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's it. Next we see these false teachers were boasting in their supposed visions. Many think that through this self-abasement, through this asceticism, through this harsh treatment of the body, through their perhaps fasting to, to the point of, uh, 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 of hunger to become delirious, through this worship of angels, they were bringing on visions that they thought made them super spiritual. Listen, I am not, I'm going I'm to take, exercise every bit of self-restraint to not go off on this as much as I am tempted to. But I will say the following. We see much of this kind of nonsense in the so-called church today where people go through crazy emotional and physical contortions to bring on supposed exalted spiritual experiences. Inasmuch as those are inconsistent with the truth of Scripture, not consistent with the truth of Scripture, they are to be rejected. And I'm going to name some names. I do that every once in a while. If you get bothered by that, Paul named names. He did it all of the time. I'm talking about people like Todd Bentley, flaming heretic, Bill Johnson, I'm talking about the Toronto Blessing. I'm talking about the Brownsville Revival. I'm talking about Rod Parsley. I'm talking about most of the people that you see on Trinity Broadcasting Network. All experiences and manifestations brought on by emotional and physical drama that brings about supposed heightened spiritual experiences which are inconsistent with Scripture are to be rejected. This focus on spiritual experience and visions and angels is exactly what Paul is talking about. Most of you would do well just to turn TBN off. These false teachers were inflated. They were proud <laughs> without cause in their fleshly minds. In other words, they thought themselves super spiritual and were proud for no reason, Paul says, because it was all originating in their own sin-filled minds, everything they were coming up with. And he goes on to contrast their experiences with that which he wants the Colossians to pursue, verse 19. They're, they're inflated in their own fleshly minds, and they are not, they're not holding to the head. They've let go of Jesus. He made clear back in chapter 1, Jesus is the head of the church. He is the one that is to be highly exalted. He is the one alone who is to be worshipped. They were not submitting to the control and authority of the head from, from whom the entire body of the church being supplied and held together by the jo its joints and ligaments grow with a, gro grows with a growth which is from God. Don't get distracted by joints and ligaments medical comments. You can talk to John, about that, he's simply saying we are all connected together, growing together 
in growth and in maturity, which is from God. And this nonsense is not from God. This nonsense from these super spiritual, made-up religious frauds. They're disconnected from the head. That's a problem. Quickly then, point three, do not let them deceive you in their trap of legalism. And he just kind of sums up in verses 20 to 23. So I'm just going to take it very quickly. He starts by talking about what we talked about last week. If you have died with Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and in the body of flesh was spiritually circumcised, I mean stripped away. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles or or spirits of this old world, why are you living like you haven't? If you have found Christ and are dead to the old elementary things which are inspired by demonic spiritual forces, then why, as if you were alive to the world and all that it has to offer, why do you submit yourself to their decrees? Do not taste, do not touch, or do, do not handle, do not taste. Don't even... Don't even touch. It's probably Paul's little addition there. He's simply taking us back to verse 16. They think super spirituality is found in saying no to things that do not matter. Don't handle them. Don't taste them. Don't even touch them. Then you can be proud of yourselves like we are. We've got experiences that no one else has. What? What? Come on. Paul says, why are you submitting yourselves to those decrees that don't matter? Why, th those things that you're supposed to not taste or touch, when you do, they perish with use. That's just like what Jesus said. You put them in the body and then they are eliminated as waste. They perish with use. Why are you making such a big deal about this? Paul's concern was that they were submitting themselves to spiritual chicanery, which was demon influenced and they had died to that Paul says these are not spiritual issues these are commandments of men to make you look externally spiritual don't fall into the trap why two reasons first these are matters which look good they make you look really special Appearance of wisdom and self-made that means made up man-made religion self-abasement severe treatment of the body but the church has always struggled with that nonsense in church history. We've always made spiritual giants of those who harshly treat the, the body. Early on, it was the hermits and the monks and the nuns who deprived themselves of the basic necessities of life, didn't eat anything, didn't drink anything, wore uncomfortable clothing, lived in caves, lived up on platforms, and everyone kind of gathered around and said, ooh, aren't they spiritual? No, they're crazy. Later, it became the German pietistic movement, the Mennonites, the Amish, and frankly, and I grew up this way, the Baptists sometimes who thought themselves super spiritual because of all you don't do. In things that of, in and of themselves are amoral. They aren't right or wrong. Second reason not to submit to this, very important, I want you to get this. I, I, I'm going to finish with this. For Paul to submit to a set of rules was to submit to a new master. I want you to hear that. To submit to a set of rules was to submit to a new master. You have one master. 
In this case, to submit to the rules of the world backed by spiritual forces was to reject Christ as the Lord of the universe, the one who had already disarmed these same spiritual forces. The reason these false teachers were involved in these ascetic practices was to aid them in visionary experiences by fasting from certain food and drink that was a preparation for an experience with spiritual beings, angels, visions. Paul condemned these practices, not necessarily because of their harsh treatment of the body, although he says, you want to do that, that's crazy, but because they ultimately looked to other beings as objects of worship rather than Christ himself. That's it. These are of no value against fleshly indulgence. All these attempts at external rules to curb the sensual appetites do not work. Has that ever worked for anybody? Did it just say no work for you? <laughs> in the end, the victory is found in one place. It is found in Jesus Christ. All through chapters 1 and 2, Paul has been reminding us of what we have in Christ. The truth is we need constant reminders lest we become sidetracked. And that is what communion is all about. It is a reminder of what we have because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our death, burial, and resurrection with Him. It's a reminder of Colossians 1 and 2. I'm going to ask a man who are going to be distributing the elements to go ahead and make their way to the back. If you are um, with us this morning and you are a follower of Christ, guest or not, it doesn't matter. If you know Jesus as your Savior, um, we invite you to participate with us. The men are going to pass out the, the bread. You can just take a little piece and, and hold it. We're going to eat together. Remember the ligaments, you know, we're all growing together. We're a body. We'll eat together. And then after that, they'll pass the cup and you'll take that and you'll hold it and we'll drink it together and see the bread and the cup represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And we're being reminded of what this thing called Christianity is all about. We're being reminded of Christ. So if you know Jesus, we invite you to participate with us. If you don't know Jesus, you can do one of two things. You can pass it. The worship team, go ahead and make your way up to the top, uh, to the front. Um, you, can, you can pass uh, the elements, or you can decide right now, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. R right now, you can say, you know what? I believe in Jesus. I believe that he was the Son of God. I believe that he died, that he was buried, and he was raised again for my sins. And your sins can be forgiven right now, and then you can participate with us, new follower of Christ. Father, right now, we thank you for what you have done through the person of Jesus. And we ask that as we remember, you would move us to greater worship in Christ's name. Amen.